Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Allowing yourself to speak truthfully shows that you can't be manipulated and controlled, which means you're perceived as a threat. The level of binary thinking and having to pick a side is so frightening. So it doesn't surprise me that people end up self-censoring. Welcome to the human experience. We're not all going to be carbon copies of each other. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am truly just delighted. I think that is the, the word that comes to mind when I think about the conversation that you are about to hear with myself and Africa Brooke. So Africa, if you have not heard of her, she's a London-based consultant. She's an accredited coach. She's a strategist, an international speaker. And her work, her body of work surrounds helping public figures, establish entrepreneurs, teams, and individual uh, with either the individual with personal or professional challenges to overcome or become aware of self-censorship and self-sabotage. Today, we talked all about self-censorship and self-sabotage as it relates to her observations in the last two years. I certainly contribute to that conversation as well as it relates to my observations and quite frankly, my heartbreak around uh, what I saw in the scientific community uh, and in healthcare and the political influences that be. This is a very candid conversation. Uh, I don't actually know if I've expressed any of the opinions that I did on this show previously, but after today, you're going to know very much where I stand um, on uh, a plethora of subjects. So we talked about self-sabotage, as I mentioned, we talked about collective sabotage. We talked about doxing and cancel culture and bullying and gender ideology and race ideology. And, uh, you know, are you pro this or anti that? We talked about all the things, fear and shame and empathy and grace and vulnerability. I really enjoyed this conversation. There is a part two that um, we are going to do together because we didn't get to all of the things. Rest assured, this is going to be one that 
either is going to be a little activating for you. Uh, it might be in line with your own viewpoints that maybe you felt like you couldn't share uh, in the past, um, or you vehemently agree. Uh, wherever you are on that spectrum, I would invite you to listen with heart, with compassion, with grace for yourself and uh, for both Africa and myself. And I wonder if this might spark some introspective thinking, some um, reflection on where our views come from, on how we treat our neighbors and what it means to be a part of the human race uh, in 2023. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Africa Brooke. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Africa Brooke, I am just delighted uh, already, even before we've had our conversation, to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. I am so happy that we can finally sit down and have this conversation. I 
think your perspective as a healthcare provider is going to be so valuable. And you're also going to share with me so much that I don't know. And I'm I'm just a very curious person. So I'm excited. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. And I think we can just dive right in. I had reached out to you a couple of months ago because I've been following your work, uh, saw your work on a couple of podcasts, which we'll talk about shortly. And um, you wrote a letter, which I think has gone viral now. You can, I think it's 8 million or 9 million people have viewed this letter. Um, And it was why I'm breaking up with the cult of wokeness. So I'd love for you to maybe give us a little bit of first what that letter is about. We'll make sure that we link it in the show notes, but why you felt called to and compelled to write this letter. What were some of the drivers and the motive and the, and the motivating forces that, um, that were behind the necessity, like necessitating this letter? Yeah. You know, it was, So I published that letter, Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness. I published it in January 2021 on the 1st. And I'd actually been writing it since mid-summer 2020, where I was suddenly facing and experiencing so much cognitive dissonance, where a lot of my beliefs were being shaken, uh, a lot of behaviors that I'd engaged in, I suddenly realized how wrong I had been about a host of many, many different things. And to be honest, the if I'm to get very specific, the thing that turned everything around for me was the months of BLM, where because of the horrible and very tragic incident that happened in the US with George Floyd, it sparked so many conversations globally around race. And to begin with, And I mean, this was a highly emotional time. And I'm sure most people listening and probably yourself, you you know exactly what I'm talking about when I refer to this. It wasn't just an isolated conversation that was happening in the US or in the UK or in the West. It became a global conversation. And because we were also in the midst of the COVID pandemic, being in lockdown, there was nowhere else to look. You had to look and you had to engage. The only way that people could get their needs met of needing to connect was online. And it was a highly emotional time. And for me as a black person at that time, I felt that I needed to be angry. I felt that I didn't just need to be angry about how unjust the entire thing was, but I felt that I needed to be angry at white people, that I had to look at white people as the enemy in order for me to be of value to my community, which is just really fucking absurd when I say it out loud. But that's how I felt. And I truly believed that was the right approach. I've never thought in that way in my entire life. But the messaging around that time was so intense and so all-consuming that I found myself parroting things that I didn't actually believe and echoing sentiments that were not true to my heart at all. I found myself pretty much abandoning critical thought and just taking what I was told um, as fact. And I found myself very angry and full of rage and very resentful and feeling a lot of hate in my heart, which is not um, by any means a normal state for me to be in at all. And 
There were many things as well that were happening around that time in relation to COVID and the medical decisions that people were being pushed to make, the division that was happening around that. And, you know, from one thing, it goes to another thing. And then it's, you know, the gender debate and everything just becomes this all-consuming thing where you have to pick a side. Are you left or are you right? Are you with the woke or are you with the anti-woke? Everyone wants to know what box you're in and what position you fit in. And I found myself, even though I'm a very, I'm a very confident person, I'm someone that doesn't have an issue with being assertive or saying what is on my mind or how I feel. I'm very compassionate and I know when I need to stand back and listen. I practice intellectual humility, so I'm more than happy to admit when I'm wrong and to learn. But I found myself not honoring any of those things and those values at that specific time. And I realized that actually this was not something that was just isolated to the year of 2020. I had actually been so deep in these echo chambers for longer than I'd realized, but it was just coming to a head in 2020. I was suddenly just seeing my own self-righteousness exposed in a way that I didn't expect. And I was seeing my own fear surface in a way that I didn't expect. Because as someone that has always been very confident and outspoken and willing to have hard conversations, when I started to notice that, actually, I, I don't agree with this idea that every single white person is somewhat racist and they have to spend the rest of their life repenting for this sin. I don't believe that. I never have. But I felt that I couldn't say it out loud. I felt that I would be betraying my community. I'm, I'm putting it in air quotes because it's a very, it's a very big ask to have to represent every single black person on the planet. Um, and for you to have to filter your beliefs and your morals through that lens of not betraying a supposed community. But I felt that I couldn't say any of those things. I had a big fear of being seen as right wing, even though I'd never cared or identified as being left or right. And I think that's something to do with being an immigrant, you know, um, where we don't have an over alliance to parties when you when you come to another country, because the focus is not that. Um, but suddenly I felt like I needed to prove that I'm on the left. You know, I needed to prove that I had the right opinions and the right thoughts. And um, I was terrified of being punished. And I didn't even know. It, it was happening in such sneaky, subtle ways, which is why I think self-censorship, which is what we'll talk about, and essentially what I'm talking about, is so fascinating because it happens in the most subtle ways. You will truly believe that you are doing the right thing by withholding what it is you truly think, um, by agreeing with things that you don't actually agree with, for me, whether it was COVID or race or certain aspects of, of gender ideology, I was just being confronted with so many things that I was realizing I actually don't believe this. I don't think I've ever believed this or agreed with it, but I just couldn't say it. And me not saying it led me to a place of being so unwell where I had chronic migraines for an entire year, which is something that... um I've experienced at different points in my life from the age of 11, but I know it's very much connected to unaddressed trauma and just very different traumatic experiences that I've experienced from childhood. But I recognized it in this year as 
it being very directly linked to me withholding my voice. And that can, that can sound quite abstract, but I know, I know you will know exactly what I mean. You know, when something is repressed, it will manifest itself physically for the most part. So that year of chronic migraines, me experiencing intense cognitive dissonance, having to interrogate my beliefs, having to ask myself what's working and what is working and realizing that the things that I was being shown would be the things that work required me to speak and use my voice in a way that I hadn't before. But I've always been a writer. So I, I started writing from July 2020, I would say is when I started writing elements of that letter. It would just be a line here and a line there. Um, and then in, de in December, I sat down on my sofa. I put everything together. I thought I would just be sharing it with a small email list of mine maybe about 5,000 people, but in comparison to my audience in other places, it was small and it felt easier to hide there, you know, because I could say my thoughts, my very honest, raw thoughts, and I could just get it done. I could just follow through and then just leave it. It didn't have to be in the public. So I shared it with my email list. And I mean, the responses that I was getting immediately, people were, were replying in seconds. And the common pattern that everyone was saying is almost like this collective relief. I could feel this wave of relief in every single person that someone had just finally said it. But because we're in a time where we play the identity politics game, a big part of that relief, the reality is that I'm a black woman. I'm a left-leaning black woman that is saying these things. So it lands differently, right? Um, so it offered relief to many people and I knew that I couldn't hide. I, I had to share it in a public way. So I shared it on my social media on January the 1st. And then this thing just took off. It had a life of its own. And also days later, the Capitol incident happened January 6th, which sparked so many conversations. So the time that my letter came out, it, it became part of many different conversations that people were having around that time. And within a few weeks, it had been read by over 2 million people and shared in so many different places. And over time, up until now, two years later, this thing has just reached all corners of the world. And I think it spoke to a part, a big part um, of many of us where we just want relief. We just want to know that, you know, we're not going mad and we want to remember what the grave looks like and we don't want to be punished for our thoughts. So that was, that was my journey in discovering my own self-censorship and realizing that it was actually making me sick and making a commitment to acknowledge it out loud, hiding in the beginning, then realizing that this is not something that I can hide. So I want to talk about the letter itself, but I, I as you were talking, I wanted to uh, just ask you, because I have found that in moments where um, I have revealed parts of myself that I had previously decided we're never going to, I was never going to let anybody know anything like that. Um, I have experienced what I would like, what I would describe as like a vulnerability hangover. Uh, so this happened sort of actually recently, uh, we went for dinner with, uh, just a lovely couple just felt an immediate, uh, my partner and I felt an immediate kinship with them, very similar stories. And we were sharing and I was sharing things, uh, with these, uh, two individuals that, literally took me years to share with my current partner. And the next day I was like, 
I am hungover from vulnerability. <laughs> like I had a vulnerability hangover. I felt scared. I felt mm. exposed. I felt uh, weak in a way. And I'm I'm curious with the, you know, you said this letter has reached all corners of the planet. Was there a moment or moments um, where you felt like, oh no, people are really going to see me now? Or was that not your experience in it? Was there <laughs> anything like that? <laughs> oh my, was it? it? I was, I didn't sleep for four days after that. I, I couldn't sleep. Maybe I probably slept for about an hour or two each night. I just, I just couldn't sleep. It was, it was a combination. It was really fascinating, actually. It was a combination of just sheer excitement. I felt so excited because I have been writing and speaking online for some time for the past six years, and I've been in the public eye for a while. And I've been having hard conversations, whether it's around sobriety or sexuality or self-sabotage, et cetera, which are hard conversations, but they're also somewhat safe because I have those conversations from a place of retrospect, right? From a place of reflecting and then bringing them to, um, bringing them to the public when I've processed them and made sense of them. My nervous system is never shaken when I'm having those conversations. But this was completely different. I was speaking about things that were so activating, not activating in a way where I can trust that for everyone is going to be like, huh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, let me, I agree with that. No, it was especially at that time, 20, late 2020, 2021, even last year as well, I would say, especially at the beginning, there was still this intensity and charge around so many different topics. So I was speaking and writing about things that were very and are very charged and very activating and things that are constantly in, mo in, in motion. There was no, it was not retrospective thinking in a way. So and because of how many people it, it was reaching and how many people were sharing it, everyone had their input. Whether it was people agreeing with me or disagreeing with me, it was a lot. It, it was a lot. Even though I don't have notifications on my phone, I don't look at my notifications as much. Like on the more practical side of things, the comments, I eventually had to limit them just because of how many there were. So there were certain boundaries that I put into place. But on a nervous system level, I, I couldn't, I couldn't rest. I couldn't relax. It was excitement. It was fear. Um, but also I had an incredible support, um, network. I had the people around me, my friends, they didn't expect me to write this thing, but they completely resonated and they understood. And my partner, my partner at the time, he was very supportive and he was very proud of me. Family members as well. They were so proud of me for writing that. So I think I, I felt shaken and I, I would say, yes, I did feel vulnerable and had that vulnerability hangover, but it was also a combination of so many, many other things like excitement, a feeling of, um, expansion, a feeling of clarity, you know, that I'm getting to meet myself in a different way. But I didn't fucking sleep for four days. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. And I almost, <laughs> I almost feel like with the excitement and the expansion um, that you just described, almost like peace in a way. Uh, yes. 
because uh, you're you're like expanding and you're like, I'm almost there. Like I've all almost sort of, you know, released some of these shackles that whatever society is telling me that I need to, you know, whatever cloak I need to bear as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I felt after this this particular dinner. Certainly it's not as significant as writing a letter that's been read by 8 million people. But I felt like afterwards I was like, you know what? That, but that's who I am, you know, that's but that's beautiful. who, but that's, and there was like a, a, you know, a day or so where I felt almost like a wounded animal. Like they can see me now, like they know Gosh. they can sort of see exactly who I am. And then there was sort of a, a peacefulness that set in afterwards. I was like, but that's, but that's who you are. Mm. So I, I wonder if that expansion that you were feeling w- was, you know, something like, peace or freedom or absolutely oh I love that and I can as as you're talking I can even feel my body relaxing because that's exactly what it was and that word freedom I was experiencing a specific type of freedom that I've never experienced in my entire life even when I got sober which is one of the most freeing things I've ever ever done I felt a different type of freedom then But this was so different. It was so different. And yeah, there was peace. I think we have this idea that peace, um, when you feel freedom and peace, you will just feel very calm and grounded and relaxed. But I think they can present themselves in so many different ways. And it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And it is vulnerable. It is vulnerable to feel it. Um, can Can I ask... In, in that time, because almost everyone I speak to has a very clear and, um, of course, a unique experience of, of that time, the whether you want to call it the pandemic years or the racial reckoning, what was your, what was happening for you around then? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, yeah. For me, I think, um, I, I think I mentioned this to you in, in the pre-chat, I felt heartbroken. Like for me, it was, it was, and I'll, I'll say this because, um, and, and this is me coming into my own knowing and my own trust. I always hung my hat on science. It was like, mm. I pray to the church of science. Like if we want to figure something out, we go into the literature <laughs> and we figure it out. And then we extract that into clinical practice. Um, and I would, and maybe that was a tragic flaw that, and, and that, needed to, uh, become undone. And I felt, and I'll speak about this from a health perspective. And I can also speak to it from a, from a cultural perspective as well. Um, Mm. obviously I, uh, am not black. My background is Portuguese and Lebanese. And I do remember in that time, someone like asking me, well, you're a person of color. Aren't you upset about what's happening? And I had never used that term to describe myself before to be a person of color and I was like well what do you mean what do you mean I'm a person of color she's like well aren't you Lebanese and I said yes my like part of my family is from uh, the Middle East and uh, from Lebanon and she was like well that you're like you're a person of color and it was almost like this label that I didn't I had never identified with and I was like oh I guess I am Mm. <laughs> like it was sort of a, and in a very naive way, I was like, oh, I guess I am. Even though in my own life, I can say that I've experienced, um, uh, I've, I, I can certainly 
recall experiences where um, my background has been made fun of, um, that uh, there's a couple of uh, instances in, you know, in my professional schooling because I was let's say uh, a darker version of, even though I present, like I present as white, let's say. Um, but I'm certainly not blonde and blue eyed. Um, certainly there's been inappropriate, very inappropriate comments from, and behaviors, let's say from older male, uh, colleagues, but that doesn't, but that sort of has always inf- never informed my identity. Like I've right. been upset that those things have, that those things have happened. Um, but I, it never became, uh, how will I say it? Um, I never, it, it, I never interpreted those as specific to me. Yeah. Uh, it was very much a, this per like, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Right. So this is sort of what you know, I just happen to be in the line of firing, let's say, in those specific right. instances. From a healthcare perspective, I was heartbroken because there were many um, doctors who, while, and many doctors that I knew personally, and then some that I knew from afar that I admired and continue to admire today, just took stances that were more extreme than I thought they might. And I want to talk about self-censorship because I was saying this to you before we started recording, particularly with um, the vaccine. Yes. Um, I'll say from a professional and regulatory body standpoint, if anything was discussed anywhere, uh, it was almost a guarantee that there would be a complaint lev- like, you know, um, levied by, you know, some member of the public, let's say to your regulatory body, you would be brought under, uh, you know, there would be an inquisition and you would be either disciplined by the committee. You'd have to, you know, do something. Uh, in, in many cases, people who were speaking out about it were, I, I know at least of, of two people that had their license suspended. They were, at, they were oh. told that they are not allowed to write any exemptions under any circumstances. And for me, that's not science. So this is what, this is what was very difficult for me to reconcile because science is all about asking questions. Yes. And we might come up with a premise. We might come up with a, with a hypothesis about how something works. And then the idea is, well, let's try to take it down. Let's actually see if this thing has legs. So we're going to question it to see if this hypothesis stands the test of time. And you had, um, and I had never really observed this, maybe because I had just turned a blind eye to it, but I never really saw the political influences that uh, prior to uh, the, we'll call them the pandemic years, let's say. Um, I had never seen, sitting prime ministers, my prime minister I'm referring to in Canada, uh, a sitting president uh, in the U.S., uh, call the unvaccinated names. I had never seen um, needing to show proof or, you know, your papers. I had never seen I, 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 you know, you, you talk about cognitive dissonance. And for me, it was it was very difficult because I and I I did feel like I self-censored in a way because mm-hmm. I knew and I knew enough 
about it to make a decision for myself and my family based on our risk level and our ages and that we had already been infected. Uh, You know, we Mm -hmm. had already sort of contacted. So we sort of had the wild type, the whole family had sort of the wild type, let's say, virus. So there was a kind of a deduction around the need or necessity for it. And in our case, there was no need or necessity because we already Mm. had tested positive. We had all the antibodies. Like, why would I need kind of an artificial intervention when I already, when we had already kind of contact, but that was seen as tinfoil hat level batshit craziness. Um, And so I didn't speak about that. I was asked a lot. I had my community ask me, Hey, what should I do? this is how I, or my job is in danger. What should I do? And like I was saying to you, Africa, I don't, obviously I didn't have the capacity to answer that personal question for them. Um, but I do think particularly around an intervention, any intervention that cannot be undone, right? When you think you can't undo a vaccine, right? Like once it's in, it's in, right? Um, I think that, I think that it's, and this may be just be my my bias or my conservative, you know, maybe my conservatism, maybe as a practitioner. But I, I, I definitely like the idea of waiting until more information is available before yes. making a decision. Um, and that was that was kind of seen as nuts. Like that was sort of seen as you, you know uncontrollable, uh, you know, wild conspiracy spewing craziness. And so I, uh, I really struggled. I really, I still struggle. I mean, it's, you know, everyone's going to know how I feel once we publish this, but you know, I, I really struggled, uh, for a long time because there was a part of me that's like, well, I'm not a virologist. I'm not, you know, I have you know, I've read quite a few books and I understand the mechanism and the science, but I don't have, I don't have the letters behind my name to speak about this publicly. So I'm not going to. And I recognize that that is a form of self-censorship because mm. I'm, um, so I, 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 I mean, that's the brutal, honest, transparent truth. It was very challenging for me because I was asked almost daily, um, I about this. I can imagine. I can and, only imagine and wanting to support people without in, like, you know, understanding the, you know, the power of my words, right? I didn't ever want to lead anybody astray. And I also think that there's, and this is sort of the other thing that at the time was seen as mm. crazy. I do think that there are, there are subset of subsets of the population, particularly in the aged or when we have metabolic disorder, that they do not fare as well with this particular viral infection in terms of the way that it invades the the nervous system and the and the lungs yes. and things like that. So there there is a justification for the vaccine in certain populations. Yes. Uh, but now what we're sort of seeing is the injury rate, um, the susceptibility of our beautiful young men um, mm. uh, and developing, you know, sort of uh, various heart conditions and, and whatnot. Um, I think that it in some cases, and I still, I even feel myself like changing my words as I want to mm. say them, you know, I, I, I feel like we jumped the gun and everybody, yes. you know, my prime minister called people homophobes, transphobes, racist and misogynist. 
and white supremacists, which I, which was very confusing. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that so openly, because you are speaking what is on many people's minds and hearts, but people feel so terrified to even say anything. Mm-hmm. Whether we can look at it as it's two years on or three years on, it's still so fresh for so many people. And the amount of one of the most heartbreaking things to your point is how many relationships have been fractured by ideology. That's the most frightening thing. The amount of private messages and email and voice messages that I receive from people and have been receiving over the past few years, especially from people in Canada and Australia, where they had just the most dystopian, took the most dystopian approach. We would be seeing here in the UK where we had our own issues, but I'd be watching clips, you know, from your prime minister and just thinking this can't, this can't actually be real. Is it because my mind, especially now, I always go to just because I see a clip doesn't mean that I have to take this fact to Klein and Sinker. What was actually the bigger conversation being had? Exactly. Yes. But it it was real every time. <laughs> it was real yep. every time. Mm-hmm. And one of my dear friends, Mark, Mark Groves, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I do. I follow him on Instagram. Yeah. I don't know him, but yes. Right. He mm-hmm. has been holding the fort for these conversations for such a long time and to me that level of bravery is astounding because you're so right especially a year ago and even now you are just called everything but your name you know even though all of these things are starting to come to light now as as we record this here in the UK since last week they've announced that anyone under 50 years old should not be getting the booster because they now have new information that reveals that it's actually not good at all for them to be getting the booster so so many different things are now starting to come to light but it's almost like you're um we're supposed to have this collective amnesia to forget that we were trying to have these conversations before. And it's it's so difficult because these are very, these conversations are had in such a binary way where you're not allowed to acknowledge that, yes, it can actually work. For example, my stance, my, my personal stance, I have so many family members who work in the NHS. So they've been on the front lines. They've seen the damage that COVID does from the very beginning. Yep. Um, but they also understand that not everyone needs to get the vaccination. And pretty much most of my family is in the medical field. They're able to hold those multiple truths. So I'm lucky in a way that in my decision to say, actually, no, I'm going to wait for a while. I don't know how this impacts me on a reproductive level and I want to have children. So I am going to wait until there's more information around that. A lot of the women in my life who've had it, um, up to six, including my clients and people I know, they ended up having three periods instead of one in a month. So many different things were happening, which led me to to stand strong in my decision not to. But I, I, I find that the level of binary thinking and having to pick a side is so frightening. So it doesn't surprise me that people end up self-censoring. And I think when we talk about self-censorship, which is in its simplest form, Um, it's when you withhold your true thoughts, your opinions and your ideas and how you feel. And the driving force for self-censorship is fear. 
it's not driven by anything else. The driver is fear. The fear of being misrepresented, if we're going to use the language we use today, the fear of being cancelled, um, the fear of being publicly shamed, publicly humiliated, the fear of loss, losing your job, losing your social group, et cetera, et cetera. Fear is the driver. And I always like to make the very clear distinction that there's a difference between using a social filter, which is useful. It's something that we use every single day. It's a way of thinking that allows you to filter information and decide whether it's appropriate or not appropriate. Maybe it's not the right audience. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's not the right conversation to have in this particular group or with this person, but you can have the conversation elsewhere. For example, I felt very strongly about what was happening medically around COVID in general, about how our government handled lockdowns here in the UK, about the vaccine and the fear that was being instilled in people and the 60,000 NHS staff members that lost their jobs when a few months before we were clapping for them every single Thursday at 8 p.m. I felt very strongly about those things, but I knew that publicly it's not a hill I'm willing to die on because in the work that I do and the message that I want to put out and the conversations that I want to have, that's just not a conversation that I want to be having publicly. But because I'm a writer and a thinker and because of the work that I do, what is the bigger message? And if by saying this, you might be able to spot it in my work. Even when I want to talk about specific things, I won't talk about the vaccine. I won't talk about race extensively. I'll think of what is the big, what is the bigger idea? Is the bigger idea division? Is the bigger idea the polarization we're seeing? Is the bigger idea loss of critical thought? All, all things that can apply to so many other things. And I find a way to have the conversation I want to have in a different way. And then in the specifics, I will speak to my friends and the people around me and people like Mark and other people about the specifics of COVID. So I think that's me applying my social filter. That's not me self-censoring because I don't think every single thing needs to be said on every platform at all times. So I like to remind people that there's a difference between self-censoring where you're withholding your thoughts and opinions because you're afraid versus using your social filter and saying, actually, Either it's not worth it, or I don't know enough to have this conversation right now, or maybe I need to tune into other people that are having these conversations so I can feel a little bit more confident about my position before I do it. So having and using your social filter is grounded in confidence and an awareness and a knowing. There's no fear around that because I don't think everything needs to be said. I think you have to be, um, it's risk analysis, right? What am I willing to risk? What is What are my tolerance levels? So I, I think self-censorship is is really a different type of beast because even the most confident and outspoken people found themselves being so terrified because there were actual consequences for it and because it wasn't irrational. There, were, there was a price to pay at a certain point in time and still um, for saying what it is you really want to say. But I found that sometimes you can say what you need to say in a different way. Maybe not in the way you initially think you need to say, but there, there are ways. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. I think what's beautiful about that is that you're able to chunk up, right? So you can, instead yes. of saying like, let's not talk about the vaccine right now. Maybe we all have COVID fatigue and we just want to get the hell mm. on with this, but let's just chunk up to the bigger idea. And then when you talk about sort of the broader topic and you can kind of dissect, is there nuance here? Is there yes. critical thought? Are we being asked to choose pro this, anti that, mm-hmm. or are we being asked to take a side What the listener hears from that is, okay, so what's really salient in my life right now is X. So can I take all of the teachings that she's saying about nuance and critical thought and am I taking a side and am I just in an echo chamber to the specific uh, subject that's maybe salient for them? Right. Yeah. And I think, sorry, please. No, I, the only thing that I was going to say that, that jumped up was that, um, and that approach is more timeless it has no expiry date. Yes, I love mm. that. And I think for some people, maybe it's not, um, you know, fear of, uh, let's say, rejection or being canceled, but maybe it's, I just don't want to not have a family. Like I I've, I heard from people that they weren't invited to weddings, uh, mm. that they weren't able to have, uh, you know, in, in North America, we have Thanksgiving, which is a very big, you know, kind of time where we we gather or Christmas dinners or any type of uh, sort of social gathering people were left out of. They weren't allowed yeah. in the house. So it might not be, hey, I'm an activist for racism. It's like, I just want to see my aunt. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's more the common story. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I still, I still grieve for those people, and and maybe that's me, um, still trying, still trying to sort things out in in my own heart. But that was probably the most difficult because I would, and it, I think initially I was, I would think I was angry initially. So I was heartbroken and angry. So you mentioned fear. And one of the things I know about at least my own anger is usually it's if I just sit with the anger, like where is this coming from? There's usually a fear there. Like I would get Mm. upset when I would see people in a car wearing a mask. They were by themselves and the windows were rolled up. I was like, look Mm. at this person. Look at this person. You know, if I just could, you know, and then I was like, why am I why do I want to tell this person about the particle size of COVID versus the particle? (laughs) Why do I want to talk to this person about that? And I think that, uh, I think that part of that was my own fear around the masks never going away. Like everyone was going to wear masks until the end of time. And I would never 
see someone's full face when they were, when I was interacting with someone, I, I found it difficult enough to speak to someone behind a plastic thing and they had, you know, and they had a, a, a you know, a mask on right. and I could barely understand them. And usually I would just look at someone's mouth if I was, ha- you know, or yeah. just look at their expression to kind of read what they were saying. And as a mother, um, you know, my children, uh, I, I pulled them out of school for a while. They were, I was homeschooling them, but prior mm. to doing that, they were learning from teachers that had masks on and language acquisition. You know, we can, yes. this is maybe something slightly different, but, um, language ac- acquisition is not just sound. No, it's, it's facial expression, it's tonality and it's, you know, it's, um, it's a 3D experience. And when right. you just hear it and you can't see the person's lower half of their face, I do think that there's some impediment to proper language acquisition, EQ, which is sort of, mm. a, you know, the emotional and like being able to sort of socially read cues. Yes. Um, and I would argue maybe this is also a more salient consideration for boys females, we are like ninjas. We can read the faces of our mothers and our fathers and our, you know, our peers earlier. And we can get, we can get into like the influence of estrogen and all that, but like, (laughs) so women, women are like stealth ninjas when it comes to reading cues, social cues, men are a little bit in terms of their development, just a little Uh bit behind, you know, they, we end, they end up catching up eventually, but, um, you know, in their sort of formative, in those developmental years, if they're just watching eyes and they can't read the face, that EQ and that social, uh, those social skills are also going to be stunted for them where they are already behind their female uh, peers. So, and as a, you know, I have three boys. Um, mm. And so this is very, this is very important to me. So I ended up pulling my kids out for two years and I was homeschooling them with some private tutors. And I was also uh, running some of the curriculum and yeah, it was, it was important enough for me that yeah. I didn't want them to learn that their friends were dirty that, you know, they, cause they couldn't share. And it was like the rules of the, like they couldn't share pencils. They couldn't like they, everyone had to sit, you know, for far away. And I said, you know what, you're not going to learn that other humans are dirty. No, That's not no. something I'm willing. That's not a subconscious lesson that I'm willing to, uh, to allow. So. Right. Yeah. Especially in their most formative years and everything that you just said, by the way, I was reading, um, over the past few years, I've read quite a few articles speaking to that very same thing. Um, around how it's just impacting growth and um, just on a cognitive level, what is happening when we have all of these things in place. And even when they don't make sense, you're not supposed to ask any questions, right? For example, the fact that I can go into a restaurant with a mask and then I can sit at the table and take it off and chat and we can do all of the things. Then if I want to go to the bathroom, then I get up and put it back on because COVID is watching and saying, okay, Africa's at the table now, so we don't have to, you know, we, we She's don't only have to- three feet tall now, so we're not going to get her. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to get her. And yeah. you can't point out how absurd it is. It's almost like people get, um, and this is not just isolated to, it's, and this is all part of self-censorship. It's a very interesting thing. Something that I wrote and talk about quite a bit is that um, for people that are very well trained at censoring themselves, you will find that 
they will get very angry and frustrated at those people that will speak freely and ask questions and point out contradictions. But it's not even about what you're saying. It's the fact that you're daring to say anything at all. So when you ask the questions and say, wait, but that doesn't make sense. If I can, it's not about the content. It's about the fact that you're even, why are you even speaking to begin with? And that's the main thing that I started to spot over the past few years, actually, whether it came to race or, you know, when I would say things like, um, I would hear the mantras around every single white person being racist, et cetera. But then I would think to myself, because I think it's a very North American, um, it's a very North American academia approach, the way that we talk about race in, in the West, um, because in other continents and cultures, it's spoken about in a very different way. For example, it's not race first, it's tribe first. So I'm right there with you when you talk about never have thinking about as a person of color. I absolutely detest that term. And thankfully, a lot of people here in the UK absolutely did. Because what's the difference between a colored person and a person of color? We sort of just moved the words around a little right, bit. Right, but right, you, But you can't ask why. <laughs> you yeah. can't ask why and who decided it. But um, when I started to realize that, okay, but which which white people are we talking about? Because a white person in Ireland and a white person who's grown up in Canada and a white person who has grown up in South Africa or in all corners of the world, they have very different experiences. So what, what do we actually, what are we actually talking about? I would notice that in me asking those very simple questions, just trying to understand, there'd be so much pushback because I'm asking people that also don't have the answer. What they have is the ideology. So I saw the very same thing, whether it, regardless of whatever the discussion was. And I found that really fascinating. And it's actually helped me with um, kind of grow my own confidence and cultivate my voice in understanding that sometimes people are not angry. It's actually not about you. People are not angry and frustrated at you. They're frustrated at themselves that they can't even defend their own position. And because they're, they're in echo chambers where no one asks questions, everyone agrees. So they can't even operate in the real world where there is disagreement, where people do have questions. So I think there's something really beautiful in daring to speak, even when it feels uncomfortable. And yeah, yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, self-censorship is such a layered thing, but I, I think there's so much freedom in allowing yourself to just move through that discomfort that is inevitable anyway. Do you think that it's, um, do you think that you appear or that, or that anger or that fear response in others when you do speak your mind, is that because you are, because you are allowing yourself to speak, uh, truthfully that you are viewed in the eyes of those individuals as ungovernable or uncontrollable. Yes. Do you think that there's an element there? Because one of the, and I, I asked this because what I observed, and this may or may not be similar to what you observed, is some of the people who so readily adopted this message, uh, you know, coming back to healthcare, let's say, like initially, mm. you know, I mean, I think initially nobody knew what was happening. Like I left my Amazon packages out on the porch for a couple of days in the beginning too. Right. But yeah. it, 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 there was this narrative that if you didn't, you were a grandma killer. Like you were going to kill my grandmother right. if you didn't, uh, you know, if you weren't kind of complying. And I wonder if the 
uh, how will I say this? The delegation of responsibility to the government to make all of these decisions in some way for a, some people, not everyone, but for some people, it was almost a way for them to, uh, the government almost replaced their parents. Like they never, yes. they never necessarily learned to think for themselves. It's like their safety and their well-being was always the job of their parents. And I've spoken to many psychologists and uh, psychiatrists on the show who often say things like, we are basically just adults with the emotional maturity of an eight-year-old. Yes. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that happening as well. And when someone is getting upset at you, let's say, for expressing your opinion, it's because you are ungovernable. It is because you are not easily controlled. And therefore, it's that that makes you dangerous. Yeah. Oh, 100%. This is something I think about all the time. And you've just articulated that so beautifully. Um, I I think it's... um, because I was just writing down some of what you're saying. Yeah, allowing yourself to speak truthfully shows that you can't be manipulated and controlled, which means you're you're perceived as a threat. Or if you're, if I think about it in kind of the language of a child, it's almost like you're going to get into trouble, but you're also going to get me into trouble. It's it's really odd. It's it's and and I think um, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but they were saying that. Some of us have this, maybe it's this evolutionary thing, I don't know, where we want to be told what to do, where we really just want to be told what to do. And I guess maybe it makes, does it make life simpler for us so that we don't have to think, so that someone can just tell us what the rules are, tell me what to do, and I will follow. And maybe when other people then don't, it it sort of threatens their sense of safety in a way that maybe we can't even intellectualize or explain. But yeah, I I find that's kind of what it is. You just seem you're a threat, you know, in, in whatever way. But I, like many things, I don't think it's a conscious thing. People are not consciously aware of that. It's kind of this unconscious programming that is always running. But the past few years has really highlighted that a lot of us would turn on ourselves and each other in a heartbeat, <laughs> in yes. a in a yes. heartbeat. And I think that can be one of the most frightening things because like I was saying, you know, in the first months of lockdown and even in the first half of the year, every Thursday at 8 p.m., everyone comes out. And I think it was a global thing that was happening. But here in the, in, in the UK, Thursday, 8 p.m., everyone would come and clap for the NHS People were asking their neighbors, can I get you anything, you know, on my one walk that I'm allowed in the day? There was kind of this, there was kind of this, we're We're in in this together. There was Mm. really that, right? Mm. And just once the messaging on TV shifted and the messaging in the news shifted, in an instant, you really saw people as you, it's almost like you saw us as the animals that we truly are, you know? what happens when we truly go into that mode of survival and what do we truly value? Because as I speak to you and as I share my story, I'm reminded that the past few years have showed me just how much I value freedom, just how much, because I I think it can be nice to say you value certain things like integrity, freedom. It's nice, isn't it? To say, yeah, I value these things, but to actually embody those values and to allow them to be expressed is so difficult sometimes. And 
the people, people like Mark and and other people really showed me what it looks like to embody the value of freedom, you know, and to speak up for other people, to also speak up for yourself, even when people will call you crazy, even when, as I said, people will call you everything under the sun but your name, and you still stand so firmly in integrity. I find that also to be very useful and inspiring in me cultivating my own voice and I'm also just glad that I was shown in the past few years that, um, yeah, I I was shown who I really am. I was shown who I really am. Yes, I was shown my shadow in that I was, in order to be safe, I found myself at different points feeling that I had to agree with things that I didn't think were true, but I quickly noticed what that was and I changed that behavior, even though it was very uncomfortable to do that. And I that showed me just how much freedom is important to me. So I think the past few years have also been beautiful because they've, they've shown me what I truly value, not in a romanticized way, but through actual action and my response to things. And I can, I can see that in you as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you. I think the, I think, you know, in terms of learnings, um, at least that, you know, you mentioned where we first were all clapping for our healthcare workers and, you know, in our neighborhoods, we would see uh, pictures that children had drew, uh, and they would put them in the window and like, thank you, front care, you know, front, Mm. uh, you know, front, um, frontline healthcare workers. And so we, we would see that. And, um, as you, as you mentioned, how, quickly things uh seem to disintegrate uh from there without without much questioning mm-hmm. um i remember my children coming home from school and you know when we had sort of put them we had put them back in uh last year and they all the kids were asking like how many how many shots have you got how like when are you going in for your next one or like they were they were the there kids. was kids were yeah so kids were like kids all the kids knew who had and when and oh i'm taking next afternoon like i'm taking i'm not going to be here tomorrow miss because i'm getting my i'm getting my second uh you know vaccine shot and like oh good for you like everybody you know so um that was that was a little challenging uh to navigate because there were you know, kids were being bullied and being teased for not having, uh, not being able to display, let's say those badges of honor. And, um, I think for me, and this is from uh, a teaching that I acquired from Jordan Peterson, which I wanted to touch on briefly, Mm -hmm. um, which I love and it's, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit. Um, and I know he's a controversial figure for many. Um, I, and I can speak to, you know, when I, cause he's from Toronto and I remember first hearing yeah. about him from a coworker and the way that he was being described, he sounded like he had four horns and, you know, like he sounded like, yes. this, and he's, yeah, he, yeah, six <laughs> horns and hated women and was, you know, so I, I remember, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a moment because I, I too was like, oh, actually I. I find myself agreeing with a lot of what he's saying. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that he said in one of his lectures, or he said this m- multiple times in multiple interviews, is if you are out of touch with your capacity for evil, something I'm paraphrasing, it's not exactly mm-hmm. what he said, but you are an incredibly dangerous person. Because I think in the, 
there was a lot of, we'll say, uh, virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I have my second booster. I have a sticker that says I just got vaccinated. I, um, you know, have a black square as my profile picture, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is admirable in a way that you are trying to move society forward in the best way that you see fit. However, if your opinions now are, if you are not with us, you are against us and coming back to this like cancel culture and you are a tin, you wear tinfoil hats or you're a quack or you are not anti-racist, um, which is a new term, I think. I don't know if I ever yes. heard that term before um, 2020. Um, then somehow you are a dangerous person. And I liked the reframe that Peterson put on this, which was you have to be in touch with both your goodness and your badness. Because if you are not in touch with your capacity for badness or evilness or your Mm -hmm. shadow side, you know, many words for it, that is what actually makes you dangerous. And if we sort of reflect at least on the last couple of years where we see videos of people screaming at each other and we see, you know, just the the worst. And I, I know, you know, social media sometimes is one of the worst neighborhoods <laughs> to sort of <laughs> walk around in because it's everything seems so um, amplified there. But I think it's really important for everyone listening. And maybe I would love for you to expand on this to get yeah. in touch with like, what are some of your dark what are some of the dark corners of your personality? Because when you, when you meet that person, you know, for me, it's like the sloth. Like I ran mm. away from the sloth because I was like hyper achiever. I am not gonna, I am not lazy. Like that was like the most scary thing for me is like for me to take off a day, you know, uh, right. very difficult. Um, and my anger, like I can get very, very angry, mm-hmm. um, at things, but to not acknowledge those parts of you, that you are angry, that you have as a female, that you have rage. I mean, that's another sort of female mm-hmm. lens. Like women are always supposed to be like, how are you, Africa? I'm great. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> you know, it's like my whole life is unfurling behind me like a ball of yarn, but everything is fine. Um, I, I think that's really, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I love that. I love that you bring that up because that's one of my, um, that's one of my favorite teachings actually of Jordan Peterson's and generally, because I think it's, it's, it it's one of those um ways of being that is so timeless that i would imagine that it's in every single culture just in a different language because it speaks to the shadow essentially right you have to understand what your shadow is so you can really honor and truly be in your light however you so define that but that language that he uses and i i really like the way that he uses language um of if you're out of touch with your capacity for evil, you're truly or more likely to be a dangerous human being. I had to go back to that actually when I was breaking out of several echo chambers and I really wanted to get clarity on what are my actual chosen beliefs and what are the beliefs that I thought that I had to adopt in order to feel safe. I had to remember what life was like for me before getting sober, which was six years ago now. I had to remember just how capable I was of lying, of manipulating, of cheating, of stealing, 
of even since being a kid, all of these very shadowy behaviors that I could engage in so easily, so easily, which was both frightening, but also exciting because this idea of getting away with things and no one will ever have to know having that as a child, it's a very kind of addictive thing when you can lie to someone and they have no idea that you're lying to them. There's, there's something about it there. These things that always just, um, came through me when I was a child and I really had to look them in the eye when I got sober and had to get very honest about them, had to speak to family members to understand how they experienced me. So for context, from when I was 14 years old up until I got sober at 24, I I was a blackout drinker, a bench drinker. I The inability to have one drink and then stop is just not something that I had. And I also did have an alcoholic father, so it was almost a copy and paste approach to his relationship with alcohol. And of course, that came with so many other things like the lying, like the cheating, compulsive sexual behavior, um, manipulating my identity in order to be rewarded in some way. These very unconscious behaviors that became conscious and I still chose them. So very messy, ugly, gross things that I had so much shame around, which would lead me to drink even more when I was drinking. So I was very, I, I was really entrenched in this, um, kind of just pit of self-destruction and self-sabotage, which is where I then found my love for the work that I do today around self-sabotage and self-censorship because I I faced and danced with my own darkness in a way that most people never will in their life. Um, so when I had been sober for quite a while, and when I started to notice myself being self-righteous when it came to certain ideologies and beliefs that people didn't hold, it was very important for me to remember my own darkness. It was very important for me to remember that I was afforded grace at a time where I didn't think I deserved it. I was treated and seen as a human being by people that I'd harmed, by people that I'd cheated on, by people that I'd lied to. And I was given the chance to change. I was given the chance to change my mind and to change my behavior. And I wasn't discarded. I was not dehumanized by anyone. Yet I was doing the very same thing, but dressing it up as social justice, you know. Yet I was doing the exact same thing um, and sort of dressing it up as some kind of moral position that is going to have me validated in some kind of way. So I, I say all of that to say, this message of being in touch with your capacity for evil and wrongdoing, harm, whatever, whatever the fuck you want to call it, is so important. And it's been, it's been such a crucial component in me finding who I am again, in me accepting that the world is so layered, in me accepting that I'm not just good, but I'm also not just bad which means the person that I'm speaking to is not just good and they're not just bad. And I don't have to put them on a pedestal, but I also don't have to look down on them because of the beliefs they have and the choices they have. So I think when I think of on a broader level, when I think of um, cancel culture, which I refer to as collective sabotage, when I think of the components that make up collective sabotage, which is antisocial behavior, 
It is public shaming, it's humiliation, it's doxing, it's virtual stoning. When I think of it, it's emotional dysregulation, it's people that are very emotionally dysregulated, but they're able to position it again as as social justice, as some kind of they're, they're doing good in some way. I always try to show compassion to that because I realize that for the most part, it's people that haven't truly acknowledged their own capacity for evil. So they they genuinely believe that they're contributing in some kind of useful way. Not everyone, not everyone, of course, but I mean those people that shame others into making certain decisions, people that don't want you to ask questions so you disrupt this echo chamber. It's people that genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. And a lot of them are so afraid because if they agree with you, they will also get punished by the mob. So it's kind of cancellation by proximity. A lot of people agree with a lot of the things that we're saying right now, but to agree with it feels like a like a betrayal, you know? Um, but yeah, I've so many things that I've put forward there, but that quote from Jordan or even just that, just that line of thinking has been so important to me. And he is someone that I discarded um, right away because of how he was introduced. I always say to him, you know, that I wish I'd come across his lectures first. You know, it, it makes me so happy that we have that amount of gold that is so readily available on the internet. And I mean, his musings, my favorite timeline of him is him in those classrooms, just so passionate and just going into these streams of consciousness and not holding anything back. There's no scarcity with the knowledge, you know. Um, I wish I'd come across that first, but I didn't. I came across a out-of-context clip. I was told how I should feel before I even watched it and before I could even make up my own mind. I was told what I'm going to think. I was told who he was. So I rejected, I rejected him completely, ideologically and in any other way. And came across him again and his work in that time when I started to think, hold on, I have been sick emotionally and verbally and spiritually for a few years now. There must be someone out there that is speaking to this, or there must be someone that can can help me just break out of this trance, which was so debilitating. And his work was something I came across. My partner at the time told me to watch something. And my entire spirit, Stephanie, resisted it. I didn't, I didn't want to like it. I didn't want to accept it. I didn't even go into it in good faith. I was open because I, I was so sick that something needed to change that I was willing to take fucking anything at that point. But I was not open to him, but I trusted my partner. And I was just waiting for that moment where I could say see, so I could, you know, justify me dehumanizing him and discarding him. And I was watching so many different things. And that the moment that I was looking for just never came. It just, it just didn't come. I agreed with almost everything. I could take what I needed um, and just leave whatever didn't resonate, but I didn't see this evil person. In fact, I saw a very sensitive man who cares. He truly cares. He doesn't want to hurt anyone regardless of whatever character he might play at times, which I don't so much agree with, like his character on Twitter. And these are things that I tell him, um, but he cares. He really does care. And the moment that I saw that, 
I knew that I can't, I can't hide my appreciation for him. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to watch something in secret or agree in secret and getting the opportunity to speak to him, which is just unheard of, something that I didn't even expect allowed me to further free myself because it's not every single day that you get to sit with someone and you, um, you get to be very honest about how you experienced them in the past and you share with them how you experience them now. Um, but yeah, he's been, he's been a very, very big part in my, in my awakening, awakening and in my journey. But it's a shame that I didn't come across the lectures first. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel the same way. When I first was introduced to him, I was like, who is this terrible person <laughs> that hates women and right. transgendered people? I was yeah. like, who is this terrible? And so I, I had a similar, um, experience, I started watching some of his lectures uh, online. And in particular, there was, he had this series when he was still at U of T where he was um, uh, analyzing art. And yes, there was an image that he was uh, talking about with uh, the snake. And it was Mary holding her child. And then there was another uh, later, it was a biblical um, image. So uh, we're talking about sort of the Catholic or I guess the um, Christian image of uh, Mother Mary holding baby Jesus, stomping on a snake. And then there was another image that he uh, brought forward when it was Jesus, the, um, you know, he had just been crucified and Mary yeah. was just sort of holding the, you know, this lifeless sort of dead body um, forward. And he was talking about this as a parable for what it means to be a mother. So my mm. first instinct is like, you're going to mansplain to me what it's like to be a mom, because I already had this sort of thing. Uh -huh. And then the, the way he had described it of course I'm paraphrasing it but he's like the goal of a mother is to release your child into the world you know especially if you have a son you know to and he was talking about this in the context like look at Mary the ultimate uh sacrifice was that her son was murdered by the community essentially right didn't accept yeah. and then there he was she was holding the lifeless body and it was very impactful for me because I think before seeing that I viewed my job as a mother and certainly there's elements. So this is not an absolute, but my, my main, uh, we'll say job as a mother was to protect them from danger rather mm. than exposing them to danger in a tempered way to teach yes. them how to deal with it. Yes. So I kind of went from this like helicopter parent to like, actually, that's okay. You can, you can like jump up and climb up the tree. And if you scrape your knee, your knee, like you'll, you'll figure it out how to do it. Yes. Like that was very, very impactful for me. And I, I think the, you know, what you said around, um, you know, sometimes activists or, you know, let's say people who don't like Jordan Peterson or, uh, mm -hmm. or, or anyone really, uh, I think you had said it perfectly. And I think it's worth highlighting is just not in touch with their own shame and their mm. own darkness that they have about themselves. Because for you to go and watch a man's video that you were told is, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, narcissistic, you know, bigot. Machiavellian bigot. Exactly. Um, and then watch him. Maybe you had a bias when you were watching him, but mm -hmm. to say, Oh, actually what he's saying is, is 
I, I can understand what he's saying. And maybe I don't agree with everything he says on Twitter, yes. but that, but that connection to your own shame, to your own darkness is what allows you the grace, let's say mm. it allows the permission for someone else to have a human experience, right? Right. Because when someone else makes a mistake, it's like you said, it's like we cancel them, they're gone, we have to delete them, you know, <laughs> and get them get them out of our sight as quickly as possible. And I, I, I do like, um, I am very enamored with this idea of like, we are all like, welcome to the human race. Like we mm. all mess up all the time. Man, all the time. <laughs> I think about this and I think even for... Um, just people listening to this because they've, they've been on a ride with this conversation where maybe they've had to think or before they can even intellectualize it, they've felt a strong sense of, I don't agree. You shouldn't say that. I I didn't know you'd think that way, right. whether it's to me or to you. And I think that's such a fantastic opportunity to just collect information, right? Instead of judging it or judging us, to just simply observe what you might be thinking or feeling, even when we talk about Jordan, because I think even in those moments, it's an opportunity to learn yourself a little bit more, you know, to ask yourself, why, why did I expect Stephanie to say something completely different than she did just now? You know, what idea did I have of her? Oh, I didn't know Africa truly felt that way. Why am I expecting her to think that way? And I think sometimes we rush into, um, whatever discomfort we feel into making the other person wrong for it instead of observing it as this neutral thing that we're feeling. It doesn't feel neutral, but it's just information, right? And then turning it onto ourselves and asking ourselves, why does it bother me so much that this person is not wearing a mask? Isn't that interesting? You know, but I think we're very quick to sort of make it that person's problem, that person's issue. And when you were talking about um, kind of moving away, moving into a different style of parenting and the lesser, what you talk about, the falling, letting them do things, that's just the default in Africa, in Zimbabwe. You will climb the, the tallest tree. If you fall, then that's actually quite a good thing. You become more resilient. You'll right. learn how to climb the tree better next time you do it. Um, and I think what I think of this culture that we're talking about, there's a lack of emotional resilience. And, you know, resilience has kind of seen, even when, when we talk about it, everything has been so heavily politicized that resilience is seen as a right wing position. I just, sometimes I laugh at these things because it's, it's just mind blowing that we've come to a point of just banishing all conversation and trying to find solutions because we've politicized everything. But I do think in those moments where you feel uncomfortable and you're confronted with, a worldview that contradicts yours, but for whatever reason you expected the other person's worldview to match yours, I think it's an opportunity to really cultivate resilience and to just get curious, you know, to just ask yourself, why do I feel so strongly about this? Or why do I find it difficult to accept that I agree with one thing, but I don't have to agree with every single thing that is said? Um, but he's been a huge, him and many other people have been really huge in helping me to to cultivate emotional resilience I would say and I like the idea of asking more questions like that's yes. so attractive to me like oh yes. I don't she's pro whatever why uh -huh. why is she, why is she like that what maybe I I never expected Africa or Stephanie yes. or whomever to have that opinion why might they 
why and you know right. i always i call this like the toddler inquisition you know like my remember when my kids yes. were young it was like why is the sky blue mummy and i would like <laughs> try to explain it and like but why but, but why but yeah. why but why and it was like why can't we i think that's a beautiful practice as an adult to get curious about our environment again oh, yes to yeah. get curious about our environment again and i uh and if there's anything if there's any one thing that anyone would take away from this conversation, and I, I think that's something that I'm going to do, just take, it's just that, that curiosity to allow ourselves to have it. And something that I always say is that um, understanding does not mean acceptance. And I think that's also a very freeing mindset, right? You can understand, but it doesn't mean that you accept it. How freeing is that to be like, yeah, I understand Jordan's position. I understand why Steph feels that way. I understand why Africa feels that way about race and the term person of color. I might not agree, but I, I actually understand it. So you get to still fulfill your own value system, your own whatever it is you think, you know, and still honor the other person as well, because both things can coexist. So that's been useful to me. Understanding does not mean acceptance. And then you, you're not a function of the algorithm anymore. You know, because yes. that's what that's what I think. You yeah. know, when, we, when you think about the algorithm, it's like we want to show you more and more extreme, let's say, views, because that's what we mm -hmm. think you want to see, you know? Yeah. And I love I love that you can say, OK, I can understand that and I don't accept it. And right. we're still you can still come to my house. You know, I'm still going to give you a cup of sugar if you've run out and it's fine. You, you know, this is this is, again, like welcome to the human experience. We're not all going to be right. carbon copies of each other. I wanted to ask you, I was listening to your podcast this morning. Uh, I was on the treadmill and um, there was there was one thing that you said I wanted to make. I think this is a perfect place to to bring it in. Uh, you were talking about uh, the new year and mm. um how you were not going to sort of buy into this idea of like rush and having to do everything now and this sort of very quick, um, you know, the Uber Eats, we'll call it culture, where it's like, yes. I'm not going to make a meal, I'm going to order it and it's going to be here in 20 minutes. You, you talk about this idea of lowering your expectations, but keeping your standards high. Mm. And I just loved that so much that I think that's actually been a the way you articulated it was you, you put words to a lot of my feelings let's say and, and we've been talking yeah. about this conversation around um you know how I uh, let, let's say I felt you know heartbroken or I felt let down by people yes. like all right well my standards are still my standards but now my expectations for the individual might have shifted I wonder if you could expand on what it means to you Mm. to lower your expectations, but to keep your standards high? Ah, uh, when I, and you you might have heard me in the episode when I said it, I was like, oh, Africa, that's, that's good. <laughs> You're like, I need a sip of tea right now. We're just like, going to have some tea. Just... <laughs> <laughs> like, we need a sip of tea right now. We're going like, to take a break. <laughs> wow, Africa, that was really good. Um it spoke to so many different things, Stephanie. I, I would say the biggest area where I've received that lesson was in my relationships, my romantic relationships, where I realized that I, I have, I have very high standards in terms of my values, in terms of how I hold myself, in terms of how I hold other people. 
Um, but I realized that some of the expectations that I had, which are tied into those standards, were just not feasible for certain people in, in romantic relationships, especially is where this was highlighted. And I went through a battle of asking myself, do I need to lower my standards? Are my standards too high for what I desire, for the kind of life that I want to live, for the kind of relationship that I want to have, um, for the future that I want to build with this person? Do my, do I have to lower my standards? And then I realized that actually, no, I, none of that has to change. What I expect and how I expect those things from that person, that's where the adjustments have to be. And there were very hard conversations, but very beautiful conversations that I had to have with my partner around that. And it was so freeing for both of us to bring our standards to the table as individuals, but then to talk about the silent agreements and expectations that we'd had of each other that meant we couldn't have those standards fulfilled in the way we needed to. And that was a huge light bulb moment for me because it led me onto a path of trying to figure out where else did I have silent agreements and expectations that were unspoken or expectations that were just unrealistic for that situation and that specific context. And that's that's what led me to speak about it in, in terms of start this idea of starting the new year strong where i have all of these ideas that i want to execute and things that i want to do and levels that i want to get to in my business and in my profile in the work that i do and realizing that okay all of this is driven by the high standards that i have of myself and i don't want those standards to drop i want to do things very well i want to go very deep with my clients and myself and my voice and master my craft but because the the expectations that I have of myself to do it by this date, to um, make sure that it reaches these stage and these metrics, that that's actually not giving me any sense of freedom. So I can adjust those expectations, even lower those expectations, even get rid of those expectations without sacrificing my standards. So when I apply that to... Um, even things like ideology or interacting with people that think in a different way. You don't have to lower your standards at all. So if your standard is that you only want to connect with people who are in integrity with themselves, who keep their word, people that practice intellectual humility, so they're willing to say where they are wrong, they're willing to um, tell you where they've changed their mind, people that hold their values close to them, those are your standards. You don't have to lower that at any, any point. But if you find yourself, because of those standards, expecting Stephanie to echo your opinion, expecting Stephanie to be in agreement with the things that you believe are right, expecting her to speak in a certain way, expecting her to only value certain types of thinkers instead of others, that's where you will find that your expectations are going to continuously lead you into a place of disappointment. So you don't have to get rid of your standards, but you are going to have to adjust your expectations. So that's how I sort of use that um, philosophy in my life. And I find it to be very freeing and it can apply to so many different things.
And you, you know, it's like you were saying before, you can understand someone. It helps you better understand someone and they don't have, and you don't have to agree with them. It's kind of, it's kind of the same energy there. It's like you are completely entitled to act and do as you see fit. And so am I. And Mm. we can still, like I said, you can still, I'll still have a cup of sugar for you. (laughs) You know, if you need it for baking or eggs or whatever, I'm not going to call the cops on you. I'm not going to be, you know, I know the, 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 the Brits have like a really fun, funny, like, I'm not going to be a curtain twitcher. You know, it's like, I'm not going to be just like watching what you're doing. You know, it's like, I'm going to just allow you to kind of do your thing. You want to eat red meat. Great. I'll have my red meat and you can have whatever protein source you like. And And we can all and we can all still get along because it is so it it seems that it is very lucrative to keep us divided. It's like, you know, oh, it's like sure. as parents, you know, you have two or three kids and what do we say to each other? Divide and conquer. <laughs> it's yes. like we got to yes. split up and we got to get them. We got to kind of get them where we want to go. And I would say that, you know, expanding that to uh, a populace and a, and a government potentially, um, maybe that's a strategy that also works. Right. Agreed. To keep us divided is is kind of easier to, let's say, control than it is for um, to look at sort of the numbers in aggregate. If we're all like, actually, it's OK that this person yes. is vegan and it's OK that this person is a meat eater and it's OK that this person is pro-life or yes pro-choice or, whatever, you know, all the yes. all the different choices. It's OK that we're all like this and we're not going to we're not going to lynch. I agree. Anyone. I agree. And the thing is, um, something I always think about to that point is whether we accept it or not, it's just the way things are that people feel differently. And when I say this out loud, it's like, yeah, no shit. We all, we all know it. I mean, it's no big secret. Even in our own, when you zoom in, this is how I also like to think of it. If you have siblings or family members, you all share the same blood and the same name, but you're all so different. You disagree on so many things. So why? Do we get onto the internet and we start to believe that everyone needs to mirror our worldview? And when they don't, it's, it, it shocks us and we have to respond in this really, um, in this really charged way. I think when you sort of zoom in into the reality of what is, it's then easier to accept. And you're, and you're so right. We division just. It's, it's stupidly lucrative. And this is all something we know. It's something we see. But I believe a part of that antidote, we have to really start small. It doesn't have to be a big, audacious act. It doesn't have to be something that changes overnight. It's just in your daily interactions where you practice accepting the differences, where you realize that understanding does not mean acceptance. So when you take that on as a mindset, where can you start to actually practice it on a day-to-day level, just simple little things. So I think it doesn't have to be, um, because a lot of these things can feel very overwhelming. Where do I even begin? It's so much. We're so divided. It's That's why... Um, I was saying before that I I typically say no to a lot of conversations and interviews unless I know that it's going to be from a solution-focused place, not just something that's going to preach to the choir and get people riled up and there's no actual solution. But if there's anything that I can put forward and hopefully it offers relief, you can start really small. It's really in your daily interactions. It's allowing yourself to um, 
read things that maybe you don't really agree with, but you just want to get a fresh perspective so you can refine your own perspective. So you're not committing to anything by reading, let's say, Jordan Peterson's book. Maybe you you allow yourself to be curious. What does he actually talk about? What does he actually think? And just just start somewhere. But I think it can be very, very small. It doesn't have to be um, an overwhelming action that you take in order to fight against division or any of the things that we spoke about. Beautifully said. And I think even just, I think as a woman, a man, woman, you know, I, you're mm-hmm. just different even day to day, you know? Yes. I mean, our, even our own opinions yes. can shift just based on how much sleep you've had and how, you know, how, much, how much stress you, you know, you're kind of dealing with at the time as well. So your own capacity for understanding and empathy and grace that you that you show is going to shift even within the individual. So I think, you know, you're talking about starting small and I love the idea of maybe just even starting to notice how you shift day to day, you know, woman, you know, I talk a lot about, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I talk a lot about women, um, you know, how we're kind of different emotionally and physically and chemically over the course of our menstrual cycle. And it's like, why don't, you know, if we, if you're, and I'm, I'm right about to, I'm, almost at bleed week now. So I'm right about to start. I am right now. Yeah. All right. So there's like, you know, you're just a little different, you know, right before you bleed, you're maybe a little bit, there's a little bit more emotionally salient uh, signals are a little bit more salient to you. And I think this is a really beautiful time um, to listen as to why those things are so salient. So Mm. yeah. I know there was a, there was many things that I didn't. I'm just looking at the time here. I cannot believe we've just passed 90 minutes together. I don't know how that happened. We'll do a part two. Well, I know that you're writing a book, and I think well, I would love to do a part two, either yes. when the book is coming out or before. I wanted to talk about um, sexual health with you as well, so we'll yes. maybe pin that for um, for the next uh, the next time we meet because I think the I talk a lot about hormones and empowering women to make better choices for their health mm. and their families. And I think that sexual health um, and being in touch with our sexuality and our sensuality, I think is is very, uh, very important. And depending yeah. on the culture and the environment that you grew up in, you may have certain stories about about that. So I'd love to unpack that with you oh, um, please. on our next conversation. Please, I would love to. Yeah, I I would love to even just dedicate a focused conversation to that because in speaking about self-censorship and self-sabotage, the past few years has showed me actually that I've experienced these patterns of withholding in so many different ways. And when it comes to sex, that's a very big area. And I speak to so many women that echo the pretty much the same sentiments too. So that's that's a conversation that I'd love to have with you, actually. All right, yeah. let's do that. Let's do that for a part two. Um, as I predicted, this was an incredible conversation, Africa. Thank you for your time, your focus, your energy. This has just been wonderful. I know this is going to be so impactful to mm. my audience. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I The time just flew by. I have so many, I have so many notes here. We're, yeah, we're, we're absolutely going to have to do a part two. Thank you so much. And your perspective has just been so refreshing and I yeah I really want to learn more I want to learn more about you and your work and even your audience and some of the conversations you have so to be a part of this has been an absolute honor thank you 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 